This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. Welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly looking at today's biggest cultural issues, all through the lens of God's infallible word. As always, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, John Rabe. Good to be with you, Rob. Uh, John, uh, today we're talking to Dr. Tim Sansbury, uh, who is a who's the provost and also professor of philosophy and theology at Knox Theological Seminary. Uh, this is one of the many institutions that Dr. Kennedy started, uh, in addition to our media ministry, our church, and uh, of, of course, Knox Seminary and uh, uh, just a privilege to be able to spend some time uh, with Tim. And by the way, um, I'm a graduate of Knox yes, Seminary, you and you attended there as well. Well, I did. They they uh, they don't brag about it, and they've asked me not to talk too much about it. They've said officially they will not take the blame for me. But I did. Uh, I've taken. I took years worth of classes over there. Not even my my purpose to go there wasn't even to try to pursue a degree. I just wanted to learn more and um, just found it. Uh, you know, I would just take a class a semester. I had kids at home. I was working, so I would just take a class usually in the evenings and just some of the the most eye opening. Uh, soul enriching times of my life that really have have built the foundation of my own life's ministry. And so uh, all kidding aside, I'm extremely grateful for Knox Theological Seminary and uh, and the people over there. Uh, now, Dr. Tim Sansbury was not there yet when I was attending there. And I kind of regret that because I discovered in this conversation, this is a, a brilliant guy, but it's also that rare combination of being brilliant and also just a lot of fun to talk to, very personable, easy to to talk to and knows everything. Yeah, Tim Sansbury is a good friend of mine. He is the, as I said earlier, the provost at Knox and also professor of philosophy and, and theology. Uh, but as you said, he has multiple degrees. Uh, not only does he have a PhD, uh, he has his master's degree from Reformed Theological Seminary and also has an undergraduate degree in physics from uh, Georgia Tech, which is amazing. I mean, talk about a well-rounded education, uh, but he's absolutely brilliant, uh, has a, a fascination and, and interest in the relationship between science and theology. Mm-hmm. You know, we often talk about uh, in our culture, unfortunately, uh, faith and science are often pitted against each other. They're right. seen as enemies. And I so appreciate Tim's approach to the classroom and, and the his approach to this topic in particular, and really seeing that faith and, and science, if if science rep is the, if comes from the realm of God's general revelation, faith from the realm of God's special revelation, he wants his students and the church at large to see they're not the furthest thing from enemies, but they are consistent with each other. Yeah. And I think the, the history of the church, especially uh, in the 20th century on, shows us the pattern is that the, uh, the, the, the scientific establishment... Uh, make certain discoveries. Uh, those discoveries are uh, either uh, either frightened Christians or rejected by Christians. You know, we have those, the Scopes trial and so forth. And and cur- Christians are encouraged to sort of be marginalized and sort of separate themselves from science to the point where faith and science don't mix. And that's why I find talking to Dr. Sansbury uh, to be very encouraging because you realize, again, it's not that there are no rocky places where we need to f- figure out if our interpretation of scripture is correct, if the science is wrong, but that there is, you know, that, and we go into all of this in the conversation, but that there is a positive relationship. All the original scientists in the Western world were 
Christians working out of a Christian worldview. They were, as uh, the great uh, Polish uh, Polish scientist Johannes Kepler said, thinking God's thoughts after him. It makes science possible. Amen. So this is very encouraging yeah. to see that these two things can and should go together. Yep. So we're going to talk about the relationship between faith and science, distinguishing science from philosophy. And I hope uh, our listeners today see the importance for Christians to be involved in science and to be leading the way. I, I, my, my prayer is for every young person in our congregations that has a love for science, that they would embrace that yes. as a field, because we need now more than ever Christians on the front lines of scientific discovery and uh, advancing technology for the common good and for the glory of God. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Tim Sansbury. So we're joined today by Dr. Tim Sansbury of Knox Theological Seminary. He is the provost and also professor of philosophy and theology. A fun fact, he also has an undergraduate degree in physics. So, Tim... How many people call that fun? <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. It's a fun fact, though. Um, <laughs> explain your interest in science and how it's influenced and impacted your theological convictions. Yeah, I mean that was the starting point for me getting into the graduate work uh, in in seminary. Really, I I was I went to Georgia Tech. It was an engineering school. Dad said engineers get jobs. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll go. I, I didn't have a lot of like, just school felt very like take the next class that you really enjoy. When I got there, I found I liked the physics itself better than the engineering classes, kind of the application, like figuring out how stuff worked. And, um, and it also had the most elective hours. So I got to most take the most other classes that I just wanted to take for fun. So, um, but then over time I, I was, you know, I was a believer. I grew up in a Christian home and I, I increasingly felt this kind of tension about how the church handled science, how science handled the church and got, got more and more interested in that. I had no idea that it was possible to study how those things go together. So my idea was I'll get done with this. I'll go to seminary get a master's degree and then go back and do a PhD in either physics or chemistry. Um, and then, then plan to kind of work in the field there. So, um, Steve Brown was an old family friend and he was at reformed theological seminary in Orlando. So I went and visited and said, okay, this is where I'm going, you know, kind of, again, lots of forethought, forethought and planning, yeah. um, but was at Orlando and there, one of the professors was, uh, Charles McKenzie, who's now passed away, but he, this was an area of interest for him. And mm -hmm. he kind of caught, he caught onto a few people right away. Just always kind of grabbed the people that he liked that, that were philosophically interested in the, in the incoming classes and said, there's programs in science and theology, not very many, but there's mm -hmm. a few programs in science and theology and philosophy of science, stuff that I had no idea even existed and said, I really want to like, we, we need to get you doing that. And so, um, as I went through my studies there at reform seminary, started kind of developing the philosophy side, which I had none of coming out of Georgia. I mean, I had two philosophy classes at tech. It was mm -hmm. really, it was, it was all about it the was science. Tech, yeah. It was all about the science and the math. Yeah. You could get an English degree and you had to take calculus, but wow. you could get a, you could get a physics degree. You didn't have to take much English. So, <laughs> um, but, but really got interested in how, no, there's not many people thinking about how science works. There's not many people thinking about how science used to work. There's not many people really thinking in depth about how the church and science fit together. 
And so then I got connected in with programs. Again, there weren't very many, but there's a few out there, Notre Dame, uh, Princeton Seminary. Um, there was Boston University. There were a few different schools that had programs where you could really look at science and theology together. And that's what kind of, that's what caught me up into the, the journey into Princeton Seminary and studying with uh, Wenzel van Hastian there, who was, that was his specialty. He was mm -hmm. the, he was the professor of science and theology there. And that was my focus, focal point. So Georgia Tech, Princeton, Reformed Theological Seminary, all institutions that I don't think would let me in, but you've attended all three of them. Uh, this is an unusual, uh, this is an unusual path. And, and of course, theology was once called the queen of the sciences. Um, but I think now there's the very common idea, including among Christians, that there is uh, an antipathy between science and theology, or at the very least, you said to see how those things fit together. I think nobody, most people don't have an idea of them fitting together or even think they can't fit together. What do we get wrong about science and theology, the two things that have blended very well in your own life and career? Well, I wouldn't say they always blend really well, but they generally do. And I'm optimistic <laughs> for them blending really well long term. There's a there's it's a really complex question. So I'll try to I'll try to address a few of the things. And I'll I'll say maybe even at the start, I think one of the problems is we're impatient and we mm -hmm. want everything to work right now. We want to understand it. So when when there are scientific developments that are hard to follow, that, that don't fit with our existing worldview, it can be really hard to slow down and say what pieces of this are going to end up being true because often science, you know, you think you, science is developing, science is throwing out theories. Often they're not well developed yet, but uh, but at times we've got pieces of our worldview, our Christian worldview that we think are biblical, and that just take time to get worked out to realize, hey, there's additional pieces. As part of the study of the history of science, we we spent a lot of time in my classes when I I have one class on the history of science. We spent a lot of time talking about the Galileo controversy, mm -hmm. and, you know, from Copernicus. It, it's a long time. It's it's a couple hundred years and in, in before it's really clear how things are. And there's scriptural texts that sound more like they fit the old geocentric than fit the you know the Copernican system. And you know, so one of the projects that I have students do is like, okay, as somebody committed to scripture, when would you have changed your mind? Mm. Now, I, it is a little frustrating because a lot of my students are like right at the very beginning, like obviously, yeah. like, come yeah, on, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. historical revisionism. <laughs> but it, it would have taken a while. I mean, sure. it just was hard there. If you're really committed to scripture, but you really believe that God doesn't lie in his creation, it can take some time to, to sort those things out. But that's not the whole story. I mean, that's that's a piece of it is that we want the answers now and we don't want uncertainties. Um, I think it's a worthwhile one for us in the church to think about because we do believe all truth is going to go here. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean there won't be time periods along the way where we feel conflict Tension, because yeah. we're misinterpreting the world, we're misinterpreting scripture, we're, we've got extra things that we think are scriptural that are in our worldview that aren't. All of that is possible and hard. But of course, there's more to it than that. I mean, the 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 scientific community is... And even that word is a little bit troublesome to say that. There's no such thing as science as this sort of monolithic, mm. everybody agrees, but it feels that way. And, and it's sometimes presented and that it's, way. And it's sometimes yeah. presented that way. And so, you know, you could be a scientist and be like, well, wait a second, you just said science says, and I, I don't think that. I mean, the word science is slippery. People use it in different ways. Sometimes mm -hmm. they mean the sort of process and the methodology. And if that's what somebody's talking about as Christians, we should be like, 
uh, yeah, we don't have any problem with the methodology right. of trying to like learn about the world. Mm -hmm. Or science is just the study of the world. Then we should be all excited about it because mm -hmm. this is God's world. And when we're studying, you know, we should be, I mean, the, the Romans one, I mean, uh, uh, Psalm 19, yeah. like there's Heavens places. declare the glory of God. It's like, mm -hmm. Hey, this is when we see how God made the world, like this is something as Christians, we should be fired up and excited about. And the Bible doesn't tell us all the little nitty gritty pieces. Like there's a lot of fascinating discoveries. We should be excited about that. But science can also um, be used, so maybe to flip to the far opposite side, there, there was a place where science really became a religion. And mm. I would identify the 20th century is, as the place where if you, if, you think about, if you think about atheism, 19th and 20th century, if you think about atheism, throughout most of history, it was almost impossible to be an atheist. I mean, atheism is a religion. It's not, agnosticism is kind of like, I don't know, or, and there's certainly plenty of people who are just like, I don't care. Yeah. But, but atheism is really, so it's, no, I've, I've got. It's a commitment. I've got a commitment. Yeah. I've got a faith commitment here to something that's not provable. And religions have creation stories. Mm. And atheism didn't have a creation story. Yeah. Until evolution and then some of the broader examinations of the universe, you start to get all of a sudden a creation story. For the so for those people who were atheistic or secular, there this was suddenly the religion became complete. It now had. I'm not saying it's a great creation story. I mean there's problems with it, but look, we gotta admit there's little pieces, we've got holes here and there, all of us in our in our, you know, there's there's troubling hard points for all of our religions. In, in places where you just don't understand all of the way. But this was when it became possible to really create a rational religion around atheism. And so for those people, there was this, there, there, there was this embrace of science as a way to, to effectively fulfill a new religious outlook and make it a, make it a complete and, and enclosed worldview. And, and I think that piece, you've got loud voices that, 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 act as if science itself is in on that, which is not true. I mean, science yeah. doesn't answer the question of why it's this way instead mm -hmm. of some other, why is there something instead of nothing at all? Um, but when you get people that, that, that act that way, then science gets used as a bludgeon against people who are religious inappropriately, but it feels like it's science. And it, and it can be, it can be really painful if you don't know. I mean, it's, the science, the technicalities of science. I used to laugh when I was doing my PhD because I didn't have all the philosophy training. I didn't have all the theology training. I was like, if I get really, really stuck, I'll just bring up quantum mechanics and then nobody can argue <laughs> yeah, with me. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you can do that. You know, right. you can take your technical expertise and you can use it use to it kind of punish cudgel, people yeah. right. out of arguing with you anymore. And if somebody does that to you, it's humiliating, it's horrifying. And if, if it seems like it's the word science that was used... It would be natural for somebody to say, well, I hate, I hate science. Mm. Yeah. Now, it, it, going back to this idea of the inconsistency or, uh, you know, often people say that Christianity and science are not compatible. And I, I love your definition that we have to be very clear what we mean by science. So yeah. let's talk in theological terms, you know, general revelation and special revelation. Yeah. When you hear people say that they're not compatible, how would you, how would you address that concern? So somebody in the church that said they weren't compatible, I, honestly, the first thing I would do is try and figure out what do they mean by the mm -hmm. word science? Because, if, because in the terms of general right, revelation, so if I talk special, about it, yeah. right? Because if I talk about it in general and special revelation, what we're talking about there is, you know, God has specially revealed himself through the prophets, through, I mean, for us today, it's largely through scripture, through the incarnation is sort of the right. ultimate special revelation, like where it's verbal, like it's coming in and saying like, here's who I am. Sure. 
but that the creation is his handiwork. And even though it's fallen, it's still his handiwork. And so as Romans 1 talks about the heavens, I mean, his, it's, his, his very attributes are visible in the world, which is fascinating. Yeah. So when we look at the world, we're looking at God's handiwork. And as we see, like, you know, human craftsmanship, we're identifying the artist by the work, even if they didn't sign it, like we should be able to see God in the world. And so I would say ultimately, special and general revelation will never conflict. But as human beings, we're always our operating. finite minds. We're yeah, we're we're always one step removed. We've interpreted, and this is not going against the clarity of scripture. It's just sometimes some scripture is harder than to interpret than others. Sure. Maybe we're interpreting scripture wrong. Maybe we're interpreting the world wrong. Right. And so what, but that's not God's fault. That's not God's <laughs> fault. And it's ultimately going to cohere. Right. It just may be a time. This is, goes back to the patience idea. There may be a time period of going, I don't know how this is going to cohere. Yeah. And going back and forth between the two and trying to say, like, I know general revelation will not conflict with special revelation. So when it feels like they do, the problem is somewhere up above. It's something in our interpretation. It's yeah, our interpretation of the world, it's our interpretation of scripture. And if we're confident that they're finally going to hold together, then we can stay embedded in there, even if it feels and there's areas where it feels really troubling to me. Like, I really don't know what the answers are to some of the things that are, you know, questions that are live right now. Mm. But we can say, I know there will yeah. be an answer on this, and I stay in it and keep having the conversation, even though it's uncomfortable in the moment. That's good. You've touched on this, but I think it's also helpful for us to sort of make that distinction between science and philosophy as well. And, and you know, you're a professor of theology and philosophy. We are pro-philosophy. That can sometimes be a bad word. I don't mean it as a bad word. It's just science and philosophy proceed upon different, uh, you know, different premises. And it sounds like uh, a lot of what happens today that's disguised as science is actually philosophy. And that doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't make it right. It just means that we have to look at it on, on other bases. Like, uh, you know, th that, for instance, materialism, which is that that assumption now that that the material universe is all that actually is. That's not something that can be proved scientifically. It's sort of it's sort of circular. That's a yeah. philosophy. So, uh, how do we distinguish between the two things that in, in a way that can help us sort of see clearly the value in science and also when a, a philosophical viewpoint is being promoted as science? Yeah, so I'll give a. I, I think this illustration helps. It's, it's a good question, and I th I think the um, one of the things about science that is kind of required for doing the work is you are presuming that when you're in the laboratory, things are happening in a regular way. They're happening in a way that's repeatable. You can do the experiment seven times. If you get different results in in in, in the sixth trial, it's not because the universe changed, it's because you did something wrong. <laughs> right. I used to teach chemistry, you know, we had students were doing one of my favorite experiments. I wasn't a big, like I really liked the heady part of science more, but I, I, we did experiments, we had to, you know, do some labs and train people in the techniques. And one of my favorite ones was you get a bunch of, and you guys may have done this when you were in chemistry too, you get a bunch of different salts that are, you know, with all different kinds of salts. And the different, based on the metal they have is sort of how they do fireworks. When you put it into a, a flame, which we were able to have live flames then. And I don't know if that's still <laughs> yeah, possible in high school, right? <laughs> but you'd get a little bit of the salt and you'd put it in the flame and then it would light up different colors. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like blue green for copper, strontium, I think was the one that was the coolest. It was this bright purpley red, you know, sodium, regular table salt was just yellow. But the students had to do it. They had to get the colors. And then if it didn't 
do right as they did the identification, they had to write, you may remember this, like error reports, you know, when you're doing it. The, but, but in the lab, the presumption is, and the, the fancy word for this is we've got a kind of methodological naturalism. In other yeah. words, as part of our methodology for doing science, we're assuming that it's the world, the world operates in this sort of regularity. But that's an assumption. That assumption is a good assumption. I think scientists need to operate with methodological naturalism, like the presumption for an experiment that the, the, the causes of this will be natural. Mm -hmm. But naturalism, the, 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 so the, the methodological naturalism is the assumption I'm not, there's not going to be a miracle here. And if one of my students wrote, their, you know, wrote in their, yeah. their error report, you know, God <laughs> changed the metals, I'd say, yeah, no, do that again. You, right. you did it, not God did it. But it's very, it's a very fine. It's a, it's a huge conceptual, but a very fine distinction in one sense between methodological naturalism, then we might say metaphysical or religious naturalism. Mm. So the presumption that by and large, I mean, almost always, we're talking about a world that God has made that operates on these natural causes. The, the little slip to say that's all there is, it is, is both tiny and enormous. Yeah. And that's so much of what happened, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries with people trying to make a Christianity that didn't have miracles or, you know, cutting mm -hmm. out all the... Sure. I mean, now the shame we have for the sort of the social shame is on ethics, like us having any ethical rules whatsoever. But then it was like, you could have the morality, but you just can't have the miracles. I mean, yeah. come on, we all know. Yeah. And it's this little tiny slip. And I think people catching, hey, we're building models and we're trying to test things. And so we have to assume regularities. And it's great. Christians assume mm -hmm. regularities. We believe God is the cause of those regularities. Yeah, he built a, he built it to run, and and we are thinking God's thoughts after him. That's and, right, uh, that's and right, and it's and it's you know it didn't have to be this mm -hmm. way, but it turns out he's made a very I mean really remarkable in physics. One of the things about physics there's so few formulas, there's so few little tiny things that are that are governing these massive systems and complexities that are hard to follow and maybe need computer modeling. But at the base, there's really a simple, elegant universe. Mm. And, and so we're, we're assuming that when we do the work of science, but it's, it's just a tiny step, but a huge step to then say, that's all there is. And so I think that's the piece people want to catch is there's a difference between saying, this is how it works under God's providence. And this is how it works without God's providence. Yeah. Fascinating. So there's been plenty of examples in history where people inside the church have unfortunately resisted science and they've been anti-intellectual uh, in their approaches to science and what's happening in the world and innovation and technology. But there's plenty of examples of Christians leading the way in the area of science. Why is that important in the 21st century for the church to understand the importance of Christians engaging in these conversations, uh, being on the cutting edge of innovation and technology, and why it's really part, especially in our reformational tradition uh, for Christians to continue to be involved in these conversations? That's a great question. I, I think, you know, to me, uh, I'm, it kind of brings to mind some individual people. So, I mean, there are, there are people in the church that have become afraid of, of science, and it's broad. It's not I've it's not I've seen the way it's abused. I see the way the word science got thrown over this political movement and and abused. Or I see the way science got put onto this religious movement and got abused against me. And there's so the generalization which is natural this is what humans do, but the generalization of science overall, I think that fear then then makes us in the church. It makes us unable to really see 
the, the blessings that can come out. I mean, technological advances. I worry about a new kind of an Amish type movement happening in the church. I mean, it seems like the evangelical church, there's groups that could move that way. We're mm-hmm. going to sort of lock in on one time period. And the, the pandemic did not help it that. It didn't help yeah. that at all. I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a... a I'm going to be a little controversial here. I mean, I think if I had to make a top 10 list of technological advances that have that have been scientifically driven and have completely changed human society, I mean, vaccinations would be probably two or three. I mean, I don't know where I'd put them with antibiotics in terms of most game-changing, in terms of people's lives being extended and disease being eradicated. And now it doesn't mean every vaccine is a good idea. It doesn't mean every vaccine was going to work out. But like, let's not just be suspicious generally about mm. something that has been so incredibly good for human society. But that fear, I get where it comes sympathetic because I get that it comes out of fear and it gets that comes out of abuses and it comes out. I mean, there's I, I understand, but I don't want us to be afraid. We shouldn't be people who are afraid. Yeah. I think the other piece of it that can happen, and there's a lot of testimonies to this, and I've, I've seen it firsthand in terms of um, you know, how people's lives get shaped when we're afraid of science as a community, then when people do go into the sciences and when they are deeply engaged and when they're wrestling with hard things that need to get wrestled with, because there's generally going to be questions that come up, it's really easy for people when they try to raise and speak about it. And most scientists aren't trained in the philosophy of science. They aren't necessarily trained in, they're probably smart people, but they won't necessarily have any training in how to think these things through. But the church isn't necessarily a safe place for them to ask questions. And I've seen people feel rejected and then either bury their concerns or actually look for a group that will embrace them. And, and you get this kind of like almost counter like within the church, this yeah. group of hurting people. I think that's such an important point you just made, the the fear of asking questions because we have created environments inside the church, unfortunately, where it's not okay to doubt. It's mm. not okay to think. It's not okay to kind of push the envelope and really challenge assumptions. Yeah. And I think that is the my my fear as well, that in a particularly our theological tradition, we've always been known as thinking people. I don't mean that in a prideful sense, but we've been people that want to learn and we value education. And uh, we see today in the North American church in particular, kind of this anti-intellectual approach uh, where we don't want to learn, where we it's not uh, okay to ask questions. And I, I really do believe, I think there's a lot of causes for why the next generation is leaving the church. But I think one of the predominant reasons, I don't know if you agree with this, is just they're not free to ask their questions. There is not a freedom to doubt. Yeah, I've got a little, so it's a little... <laughs> It's a. I worked in Christian education for a long. I mean, I still am in Christian education. I worked in Christian education with kids for a long time. Yeah. And got to speak on some of these topics at uh, the schools I was in early on, where ACSI, Association of Christian Schools International, which is the biggest Christian school association, and kind of raised some of these topics about engaging science. And there were a lot of great audiences, but there were always some people that were very, very unhappy um, with just the idea of of teaching about how to think. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a real concern that the um, that that many schools and even many educators who are themselves, they remember their struggles and their fears. It's like, we're going to we're going to we're going to fix this, but we're going to give the kids all the answers and they'll be totally blocked off, which right. you can't do. You build up walls and kids are going to knock them down from the inside when they get to college. But I think, you know, I, I honestly think there's there is a um, broadly speaking Christian schools have a problem at times with spending 13 years teaching students. You've got to believe what the teacher says. Mm-hmm. And then the students go to college and they do exactly that. Right. They believe what the teacher says, but it's a different teacher now. Yeah. They haven't been taught 
that it's okay sometimes to question. It's okay. I mean, and yeah, you know, it's not always middle school kids want to argue about everything and it doesn't have to be every argument is a good argument, but actually teaching the art of thoughtful consideration, teaching yeah. the art of, of how to think things through, teaching the art of how to say, man, that sounds really good, but I'm not so sure. Right. I don't know if we've been great at that. Now, Christianity does not call us to check our mind at the door. We are to be transformed by yeah. the renewing of our mind. And to love the Lord with all our mind among uh, the other constituent parts of who God made us to be. So, uh, Tim, I'm curious. You mentioned, of course, your your background in Christian education. You are a professor at Knox Theological Seminary, founded by Dr. D. James Kennedy, of course. Rob, a proud graduate of Knox. I have studied there, my daughter is studied there. We are uh, we're Knox fans. Uh, tell us a little bit about how things are are going over there. What is it? What is it that you're trying to do at Knox Seminary as you produce this generation of graduate students? Well, we've got a. I mean, it's it's not a science thing, but often science and technology get thrown together. We're really embracing the technology of remote education, and a lot of people are mm -hmm. doing it um, in the theological world generally. When you hear people talk about remote education, distance education, it's this: well, we have to to make mm -hmm. money. But it's you know, like so, it's it's sort of this feel like second class citizen, like the the good citizens are the ones that are on campus, and the bad ones are the ones that just can't come, but the schools have to to survive. And uh, there are, you know, online education is not perfect, but to me, what we're, and, and to Knox, what we're doing is really trying to embrace this and say, for the sake of the church, it, it used to be that the church was the primary organization that was, that was tasked with raising up its next leaders and ministry right. leaders. And over time, I mean, seminaries were, were a great addition to this, but over time, the seminary almost kind of took on that role. And so as a church, you could identify a leader and then you would say, you really need to go to seminary and you'd send them generally out of your church and away where they would go and then get educated and they may or may not ever come back. Mm. But that was a necessity and it was a good necessity because that's where you had the theological education. But you were sending away your but best But you're sending your away your best students. Yeah. students. Yeah. You're sending away your upcoming leaders. Mm. And when you got to seminary, I mean, it was there's only so many youth pastor jobs in one city. Mm. I mean, you've got <laughs> 4,000 seminary students in one town. Yeah. What are they going to do? Right. Well, most of them end up not being able to be significantly active actively engaged in ministry because there's just not that many opportunities. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is really embrace the online and say, in part, to the churches, we're going to do this. We're going to do this really, really well. We're going to allow you to keep your people. We're going to try to keep the cost down. We're going to try to give them, give your your upcoming leaders the opportunity to get that education. Now, the student has to be more motivated online. You can, you can sneak through the corners much better online than you can in real life. So the student has more responsibility. But also saying to the churches, but if we do this, there will be losses for the students in terms of their relationship with professors. You as churches need to step up and you guys need to take back this role that was yours and really I think is the church's um, role of raising up the, the future leaders. Yeah. And so we'll take care it's of the, phenomenal. Yeah, we'll take care of these like fancy degrees and the and the the high level tests, but you keep your people engaged, you keep them there, the costs are lower. We think it's a better model for the future of the church. Yeah. And I've, I've seen it firsthand, not only as an alumni, but as a board member. I mean, the majority, correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of our faculty is either a teaching elder or a ruling elder. Uh -huh. um, yeah, a lot of is, them Which are, is amazing. So, I mean, they're churchmen. Yeah. We have churchmen running the yeah. seminary, which it, I think is a blessing. Because when you think about it, it's sort of odd that we don't always do that. that right. Uh, you know, that's, that has often been an exception rather than the So you have men rule. teaching in the classroom, yeah. running the seminary that love the local mm -hmm. church. And I think we are seeing some, a, a kind of a paradigm 
paradigm shift. But as Tim said, really nothing new, but we've just kind of lost it. Yeah. You know, yeah. over the well, last uh, yeah, over yeah. the last four or five hundred years, uh, exactly changed. But it really is the ancient model but for the how model theological education. Yeah. That's right. Abs- absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. I one of the My things pleasure. I hear from students is you do give them the opportunity to think. So thank you <laughs> Some for of them like it. No. well, thank you for challenging <laughs> our Some students. Of them like it. <laughs> no, because we need ministry leaders out right now in the, this cultural moment that are able to think, that are able to defend the faith Amen. in a way that is winsome and grounded in the word of God, but done in a spirit of grace and truth. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I, that's what we're trying to do. And, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, I want to thank our audience for listening to today's broadcast of the City of God podcast made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. This is a weekly podcast, so make sure you go to cityofgodpodcast.com where you can listen to all previous recordings. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure that you go tune in to our YouTube page to watch the video version of the City of God And as always, we encourage you, if you enjoyed this podcast, would you share it with a friend, a family member, or anybody that is interested in thinking about today's issues through the lens of God's infallible word? I want to thank you once again for listening, and may God richly bless you throughout this week.